0: Colossians 4, Colossians chapter 4, taking a break from the book of Genesis, and we are going to, we've been looking at kind of New City's core values a little bit. Um, Last week we dealt with the gospel's impact um, on both the poor and the rich. This week we're going to deal with the gospel itself. And the need for it to go out so that people can be saved and changed. So Colossians chapter 4. And we're only going to be looking at a few verses. Verses 2 to 6. This is a textual sermon, but in another way it's topical. So we preached through Colossians not too long ago. But I'm going to focus on just some things out of the text. Um, If you'd like to hear the whole text, you can go online, we're online, and you can hear that sermon. So, let's stand together for the reading of God's holy, inerrant word. May he bless it to our hearts this very morning. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. (laughs) Amen. Now, I know how to make every single Christian in this room feel guilty about themselves. I'm not talking about pointing out some secret sin of yours or some uh, sin that I found out about. I'm not even talking about worldliness that's infiltrated the church. Yep, I'm going to be talking about the E word. What's the E word? Evangelism. See, already you're like, rut row. Let me me take a little crack at it, as a matter of fact. Let, let, let Let me throw the guilt on for a minute. Just stick with me for a moment. Listen. When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone who doesn't know Jesus yet? Or better yet, have you ever in your entire Christian life led someone to Christ? And for those of you who may have done that, how long ago was it? I don't need to go any further, do I? You understand where that's coming from? Uh, I began my message this way this morning because it's actually how I've heard preachers sometimes go about um, in trying to inspire and motivate God's people to evangelize the lost. Now, I don't know about you, but that kind of browbeating rarely inspires me to go out and now I wanna go tell people about Jesus. What does it normally do? It drives me deeper into a depressing hole. You with me? So in case you haven't guessed by now, this morning's sermon's on the church's responsibility to evangelize the lost. But in particular, this is important, we're gonna look at specifically what role lay people are to play in the evangelization of the lost. Uh, see, there are two extremes i 've seen in my life um, since I got saved in 1986. The one extreme and I ha- actually had a professor in seminary that used to teach this drove me nuts, that he said and tried to teach us that only ordained ministers and missionaries are called by God to actually evangelize the lost. So that didn 't really sit real well. <laughs> With this young uh, Italian-American kid from the Jersey Shore who, as soon as I got saved, told everybody about Jesus to the point of people wanted to, like, tie me down. And, uh, uh, you know, and the other thing that always hit me was, are you telling, if you left the evangelization of the world to only ordain missionaries and ministers, we'd be in big trouble. Because I've done surveys with different congregations I've worked in, and I said, you know, how did you come to know Jesus? And I had these different boxes you could check. And some of the boxes were a friend, a parent, a Sunday school teacher, right? Or a preacher, or a sermon, or, you know, the list went on and on. But I can't tell you how many of them marked down a friend, a parent, a neighbor. No, thank God that's an extreme, right? We know that. But then, of course, there's the other extreme that we have to... uh, be careful of as well. And that is to expect every single Christian believer, no matter what their gift set, no matter what their spiritual gifts are, no matter what their temperament, to be uh, what we call confrontational gospel presenters. That's the people that forcefully do the EE. You know what EE is? Evangelism explosion, that go up to strangers, that knock on the door, Hi, we're from such and such church. Do you know if you died tonight that you would go to heaven? Now, the issue is, I'm not making fun of that. I'm thankful for the people who do that. I say glory, hallelujah, thank God the gospel's out. But I'll tell you what, not everybody's called to do that. That's an extreme. I'm not saying not everybody's called to be a witness, but not everybody is gifted to, to present the gospel that particular way those are two big extremes and too often we feel like we have to choose between one or the other but i like what uh, uh, shakespeare says in romeo and juliet a plague on both your houses you don't have to choose between the two there are other options i think it's important because when you look at the whole full body of christ you have to realize, especially preachers have to be careful not to burden people down with unnecessary burdens, not to give them commands that God has not commanded them so that if they're not constantly preaching to their coworkers, their friends, their family, they feel like they're actually sinning against God. And I know I've been under that preaching and I probably have to say in my young years, I probably preach like that to some degree or another. Now here's the issue before I, we jump right into this text. Here's the thing that really hit me. Now, I cut my teeth on the epistles of Paul when I first got saved. I, I don't know why, Paul's epistles just seem to really speak to me. Of course, the whole Bible, but really, so I know them really well, by the grace of God. And I ask myself the question, where would I go in Paul's epistles to find a command to lay people to go out and proclaim the gospel? And you know where it is? Nowhere. Nowhere. That was a shocker to me. That was a huge shocker that there's no overt command to lay people to go and preach the gospel. I knew it was going to get quiet in here. Hang in. I told you, you got to hang in here with me. But what, what I did find was also very interesting. So here's the neat thing this message is going to be freeing, it's going to be liberating. But I can't promise it's not going to be convicting. Because the gospel has a way of doing it, doesn't it? It has a way of convicting us in a way that at the same time, it encourages us. And it inspires us. And it sends us out with joy to do the very thing that God calls us to do. The gospel has the power to do that where the law doesn't. And we're going to see that today as we look at Colossians 4. Colossians 4. And what we're going to see is that lay people aren't off the hook completely when it comes to evangelizing the lost. There there is a role that we all play in evangelizing, but it might be a little more surprising than than we first thought. So in this passage, we're going to see this. Christians, all Christians, are called by God to do three things in terms of world evangelization. Number one, talk to God about men. Right? You ever hear that saying? Before you start talking to men about God, talk to God about men. Secondly, walk with God in the presence of men in other words walk the walk and third of all now in that context talk to men about God here's the three things we're going to see so let's take a look at the first one talk to God about men and when I say men like the Bible does very often I mean men women and children so let's read it again. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may cl- proclaim it clearly as I should. Very quick context, because you never want to pull the Bible out of its context, the passage out of its context. Paul has just been telling, had just been telling the Colossian Christians that they had died with Christ and they had been raised with Christ. That they had put off the old nature, the old man, and they put on the new, which is to be created to be like God in righteousness and in holiness. And so in this context, Paul's been, now listen, this is really cool when you see the order. I love when I see order, right, in the Bible. It's really cool, because it's there, sometimes we think it's haphazard, and then we go, oh, he actually had a point you wanted to make. So what we're gonna see here, it's pretty cool, is that he, Paul applies the gospel To different relationships that the christian will have the first place he talks about in colossians three is how we relate to one another in the church put off the old don't lie to one another you know that type of thing but tell the truth and then he talks about how the gospel applies in our families so husbands wives parents children right and then the third way is where how the gospel impacts us in our work and in those days he was talking about slaves and masters Right? In other words, in some ways we could say employee, um, employer. Right. So the workplace. So how the gospel works in the church, how it works in the home, how it works at work, that almost covers the whole thing, doesn't it? Well, there's one more place, and that's what he gets to right here. Now he's going to be telling them how to conduct themselves as new women and new men in Christ in the world. In other words, among those who are outside of Christ. This is how we as believers are to live our lives in the midst of an unbelieving world. That's what he gets to. And it's interesting, the first thing he tells them to do is to talk to God about men before they talk to men about God. He tells them to be devoted to prayer in general, um, but then specifically, and that's what we're going to deal with this morning, specifically he asks them to pray for him and his fellow missionaries. He asked them to pray that God would open a door for their message, that, th- that is the gospel, and that he might proclaim it clearly as he rightfully should. Now look, this should be beyond controversy, no matter where we stand on these things, that as the church of Jesus Christ, we need to be praying fervently for pastors, for evangelists, for missionaries. Can I get an amen? amen. It's the, the church needs to be on her face constantly. That God would do the very thing that Paul prayed about, that asked for prayer for. That God would open up great doors, effective doors for the gospel to go forward so that people can hear it and what? Be saved. Last week we saw what's the hope of the poor? What's the hope of the poor? To get rich? No. Hope of the poor is the gospel, which can give them hope and new life, life here and then hereafter. What's the hope for the rich? Same thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which will transform their greed into generosity so that they could cooperate with God and his purposes and being a blessing to many. And so here we see what is the need for the world in general, of course. It's for the gospel. When we look around at our own city when we look around our own situations our own family life we realize you know we get depressed we we could feel horrible we could wonder what's the answer when all along as believers we know what the answer is the ultimate answer the only answer that's gonna last into eternity and that's that people come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior and are rescued not just from the plight of this life because This life is relatively brief compared to eternity, but that they would find Jesus, or Jesus would find them. Let me correct myself. Someone once said this, Thomas Bach said, Many of us cannot reach the mission fields on our feet, but we can reach them on our knees. Sometimes you have a burden, maybe for specific places, And there are places in my life I probably will never get to in terms of myself ministering the gospel, but I have a heart for them, and I can get a beeline right away to God if I go on my knees. And I say, Lord, you know that little church in Naples I got to visit? Add to their number those who are being saved. Strengthen the arms and the hands of those brothers and sisters who are out there putting their lives out for the sake of the gospel. Lord, have a witness in Italy. And you could do that with Liberia, Hong Kong, New Jersey. That's right. Everywhere. We ought to join together in believing kingdom prayer for those who, as a a calling, preach the gospel. And it's interesting to me that the Apostle Paul, who when you look at his evangelistic activities... (laughs) You're just like, there's no way I could do a a, a fraction of a tenth of the people that he's reached. And what does he do? He says, I need your prayer. I need your help. Pray for me. That's humbling. Dick Lucas puts it this way. He says, it's of great interest that the first duty of the Christians in Colossae was to open their mouths in prayer for the preachers of the gospel whom God had evidently called to this work. It was not by inference their first duty themselves to preach, the fresh and necessary awakening of the churches today to the concept of every member ministry and the mobilization of all Christians to take the gospel to all the world should not be allowed to tone down this truth. And what he's saying there is, let's not go from one extreme to the other. So the Apostle Paul exhorts us, first of all, to pray for those who have the particular call to preach the gospel. The second exhortation, as it relates to our relationship with those outside the faith, is to walk in wisdom in the presence of men. It's interesting, the first duty for every single Christian is to walk the walk in every area of their lives. You know, show me, don't tell me. That's the first step. Verse 5. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Now this is convicting, isn't it? It's convicting because it's simply to say that we've got to make sure that we're walking the walk before we start waxing eloquent and talking the talk. Um, D.L. Moody once said this, and I already put this in my sermon, and then Facebook puts up a quote that I quoted six years ago, and it's this one. Uh, this very day. I'm like, boy, you know, if my mom would it was only here, because we used to say, Ma, again? You're telling us that same story? Well, hey, I don't mind. This is a good quote. You, you can hear it again. It's worth it. Deal Moody said this. The Christian is the world's Bible, and in many cases, a revision is necessary. We are The gospel according to put your name there because that's what everybody's seeing we don't have to like it but if we are really believers in christ that's a fact that's a fact one time (laughs) in the city here i was conversing with a woman who (laughs) had gotten in trouble with the law she did something really really shady in her business practice and got caught and i was visiting with her and she just chatting with her, trying to, you know, have a good conversation. And she said, oh, my husband loves to talk the Bible. And I got to tell you, I kind of bit my tongue, you know, it was probably a little blood trickling. I'm thinking to myself, you know, it might have been a good idea if he decided to live the Bible first before he decided to talk the Bible. You know, it's very wearying when we hear people waxing eloquently and yet their, their lives, I'm not talking about we're all imperfect, but their lives are diametrically opposed to Jesus go in a total different direction and yet they want to talk the bible paul is saying that we have a responsibility to watch how we live before the watching world why because whether we like it or not we're representing jesus we are his redeemed people Now in verse 3 he asks the Colossians to pray for his opportunity to preach the gospel but in verse 5 he turns to the everyday opportunities that God will give us to walk the talk every day between a lost listen and a spiritually needy watching world. Now I love this story because Dr. D. James Kennedy I got to tell you about him real quick. Dr. D. James Kennedy is the one who started the evangelism explosion program and they forced me to take that training uh, when I took my first call in Baltimore Maryland and but the training was in Michigan don't ask so I'm in Michigan I'm, I'm doing this EE thing and as you're reading the materials um, Dr. D. James T- Kennedy who's now with the Lord a dear brother in Christ he puts the fear of God in you all right about being able everybody should be able to be bold Uh, proclaimers of the gospel and he tells the story this is important he tells the story of how he goes when he first came out of seminary he goes to uh, the pastor his pastor friend Kennedy Smart just to confuse you they both have Kennedy in the name. Kennedy Smart invited him to come and preach some evangelistic sermons for like uh, 10 days and during the day he didn't tell them they were going to do this they are going to go door to door and share the gospel with people. So he tells about this one story where he goes, he knocks on the door, they all they go in and there's this big burly guy, kind of hulking kind of a guy. And so Dr. D. James Kennedy takes a crack at him and starts trying to witness to him, you know, if you know, if you were to die tonight and the guy shut him down flat. As a matter of fact the more that Dr. D. James Kennedy talked, the more angry this guy got and it really went south real quick. Until the guy who had, the pastor, fellow pastor and friend who had invited him there took over. He took over and in a matter of minutes, D. James Kennedy says, he had that guy receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior. But here was the takeaway for D. James Kennedy. It's because I wasn't good enough at presenting the gospel and the other pastor was better. And, and you know how that guilted the snot out of me when I'm reading that? Because now if you had any fear of evangelism before, right? What's the biggest fear that laymen have? I'm going to say the wrong thing, right? Or I'm not going to have the right answer. I'm not going to do it right. Anybody with me on this? Oh, yeah. So then, just by happenstance, I call it good God incidents, I'm reading Kennedy Smart's book for a different class in seminary, and it's on the history of the PCA. So I didn't even know these two things would connect. And he begins to tell the same story. But I want to quote, I think I have the quote here. Do I have the quote here, or if Yeah, so this is what Kennedy Smart says, his version of the story. He talks about how the same exact incident I just told you, but then he says this. Jim, that's Dr. D. James Kennedy, says it was because he was a poor evangelist, but that really wasn't so. It's just that he had no bridge to the man. The man knew I loved him. I had shown it in many small ways in the community and during troubles in his family. So forgive me, but Dr. D. James Kennedy, you kind of left a really important detail out. And what was that detail? His buddy had loved on that guy and that guy's family. So he had the respect and he gained a hearing for the gospel. So when Kennedy Smart shared the gospel, he had the beauty of the good works and the walk, walk walking the walk before him so that when he talked the talk, the man actually listened. So, brothers and sisters, we can't minimize how we can beautify the gospel by the way we live in front of a watching world, the way we care. You know, it's that whole thing, um, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That's very, very true. So when we walk the walk in our everyday lives, walking in the freedom and the joy of the gospel, whether it's in the church, among our brothers and sisters in Christ, whether it's at home, whether it's in the workplace, opportunities to share the gospel with unbelievers, listen, will happen. They will come up. As a matter of fact, we won't be able to prevent the world from asking questions. You know, it's funny because over the last 10 years, since my, my wife has been very involved in medical missions and with uh, m and Church Planning uh, Assessment Center and things like that and here at this church, she will often come to me and say, oh, I can't, somebody asked me such and such a question, but I wasn't sure what to tell them, or I can't believe it. I, I should have said this, or I should have said that, and I, I cannot count. I lost count of how many times she's come to me with that same testimony. But I bring that up to say, look at how many opportunities she had share a word about the gospel just because of her everyday life loving on people caring for them showing the love of Jesus and that's exactly what Paul's talking about here and notice here he talks about he says um, make the most of every opportunity did you notice that in the Greek it actually says buy up the time buy up the time Curtis Vaughan puts it this way. The sense of the phrase is that Christians, as an expression of practical wisdom, must buy up, seize, make the most of every opportunity for testifying to the faith. Such opportunities are brief seasons which soon pass. The wise Christian will therefore recognize them and use them while he can. You know, we talk about money doesn't just grow on trees. Well, time is running out, too. And there are some opportunities that we find, boom, God opens his wide door. And if we do not walk in them right now, if we do not take that opportunity now, guess what's going to happen? They will be gone forever. I'm not saying it to scare you or make you, I'm telling you it's a fact of life. That's what Paul is saying here is make the most. I, I quoted from Ephesians because it's a parallel passage, right? And he, and he said the same thing. There, be wise. Don't walk as foolish, for the time is short. Now, we know that from this past week because we saw a young lady was shot and killed, right, as I mentioned in prayer, right in the neighbor, one of the neighborhoods that we've been doing uh, outdoor Bible clubs since 2010. And it's interesting, um, one of our members here, I don't want to embarrass him, wrote something that struck me. Um, they wrote, The blue tarp will never be the same for some of us. And so, you know, the blue tarp is a tarp we throw out at the Bible Club, and that's where the kids will come and sit on it. And that's true. But I think it made me think of something. The very first time we came to Back, Maryland to do Bible Clubs, and some of us may have forgotten this, a 19-year-old was just shot. So our very first time stepping foot on there to do Bible clubs, I remember there there were all these beautiful flowers like a memorial in front of the apartment because I remember when I got there, I'm like, hey, what's that all about? And the kids told me. The young man was shot. When we came to talk to the head office there um, of the apartment complex, uh, the woman personally told me to my face, you all are an answer to our prayers. We've been praying for some hope, for some comfort, for some way of ministering to the kids in this troubled time. And I will never forget that, because they were looking for some healing, a way to calm the children in the community, to kind of ease up the uneasiness. If there's anything we should get out of this horrible, senseless tragedy, it's that days are short. Time is passing. And we need to take advantage of every opportunity that our gracious God gives us to point children and adults to the healer and the restorer of broken hearts, broken lives, and broken dreams. That's exactly what Paul's talking about here in Colossians 4, 2-6. Don't let those opportunities slip away. Don't, when the, when the opportunity opens, don't worry about whether you could preach like Billy Graham. Just preach like yourself. Just say what you know about Jesus. I mean, literally, if all you could do is repeat John 3, 16, but I have a feeling you could do a lot more, do it. And, and ask the Lord to bless it. Ask the Lord to do the work. Because we bring the word, but the Lord is the one who saves And I think it's interesting, when Paul prays for prayer, he doesn't say, pray that I will convert people. What does he pray for? That an open door, God would give an open door, that I would make the gospel clear. So look, you can spend your whole life sharing the gospel and never lead anyone to Christ and still be a faithful witness. Where you fail, and this is where I told you you get a little bit convicted, is where you refuse to ever open your mouth even when God calls upon you to just gently, lovingly tell people the good news. One more thing about um, taking advantage of every opportunity, and then we'll go to the last thing I want to point out from the text. Some of you have heard this before, but some of you in this room have not, and that's why I'm going to repeat this story. When I was a young man in the Lord, again, uh, I was one of those EE type of guys just because I was so thankful for what Jesus did for me, and I, I wanted to tell everybody. I guess I was around 19 years old, and my buddy who was a paraplegic got saved um, through his ordeal and his sickness, he said it it took a wheelchair to bring him to Jesus, and he had a son who was my age, who was kind of getting off the tracks, you know, kind of beginning to rebel, he um, was just about to join, or he had joined, uh, I think the army, and my buddy John said, you know, really it was heavy on his heart for me to share the gospel with his son, and and I did, joyfully. And I remember telling him these very words. You don't, you're not promised another day. Now's the time of salvation. You need to repent and believe the good news, and God will take you and save you and make your life brand new. No lie, maybe a few weeks after that, I got the phone call. He had been with some buddies. And I think they got drunk and he drove into a brick wall and died. But that's that's not even the weird thing. The weird thing is I had said the very same words to another young man. I said the same thing. You don't know, you don't know how much time you have, you need to repent. And I was dressing for the first guy's funeral, John's son, putting on my jack suit and tie, and I got a phone call and I picked it up. And my buddy said, Hey, you know how we were supposed to meet with Howie? I said, yeah, we don't have to worry about that anymore. This guy wasn't very sensitive, but this is what he said. He died. He got hit by a train. So while I'm getting dressed for the first guy's funeral, the second young man was killed. My point is, don't wait. When those, I'm not saying force doors open and annoy people and keep bugging on them. I'm talking about when you see that door opens, run in it. That's what Paul is saying. Both in the way you live before them and in the, in the words you speak. Last thing we see, we will eventually have to talk to men about God. Uh, verse 6, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, and here's the punchline, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So it looks like we do have to use our words after all. Don't we? Our godly lifestyles will make the gospel attractive and hopefully that will make folks inquisitive and looking for answers. But the dreaded moment that introverts and us uneasy extroverts fear will eventually come. We will be asked to engage in spiritual conversation with our unbelieving neighbors, friends, and even enemies. And what Paul is saying is you need to be prepared for these divine appointments as I like to call them. You need to be prepared. And how are we going to be prepared? There's three things. First thing Paul says is make sure your speech is always gracious, or as the original great Greek puts it, that your speech is always in grace. Now, I read literally a stack of commentaries trying to figure out exactly how to explain this to you. But, and I found one guy who I thought really captures it well. So... Um, Allow me to quote him in full. He says this, his name is Herbert Carson. He says, grace is, as it were, the element in which the believer moves. He speaks as one who has experienced, and indeed constantly experiences, the grace of God. This should influence the content of his words, as he seeks to avoid what would be unworthy of the God who has saved him, and to impart continually that which will edify the hearer. It should beget a spirit of humility for one who is himself a debtor of grace can scarcely be boastful before men. It should lead to a gracious approach for an awareness of God's merciful dealings with him should deliver him from a brusque or ungracious attitude toward others. Isn't that good? In other words, as those who have received the grace, we need to make sure we speak in grace, when we talk to people with gracious words. Jesus at times read the Gospels, he was firm, but no one would ever say he wasn't gracious. He was filled with grace and truth. That's what the Bible says, full of grace and truth. Second thing, make sure your speech is seasoned with salt. Commentators go all over the map on this one. I'm telling you more. Well, salt makes food tasty. Well, salt salt preserves food. Well, salt, in in the Greek literature, it meant witty. I'm like, okay, whatever it means. I don't know about all that, but I'll tell you one thing. Salt definitely has a bite, doesn't it? It has a preservative edge. And yes, it does make things flavorful. And I I believe what Paul is saying is this. Gracious words still ought to have a healthy, preserving kick to them. The truth will always give a little punch. You with me? Amen? Amen. That means to speak in grace doesn't mean downplaying or minimizing the truth of their need for the gospel, or it doesn't minimize the content of the gospel. Both of those things still have to be there in love. Notice Jesus was very gentle with prostitutes, right? but he didn't he didn't back off he wasn't soft on the truth you know like i always think of the way he treated the woman caught in adultery i think this might help us a little bit illustrate this where he says has anyone condemned you remember what she says no and what does he say here's the good news here's the grace neither do i but there's a little salt that comes now go and leave your life of sin don't do it no more that's salt that's got the preservative That's what I think Paul is talking about here. And here's the point, to get right to the point. (laughs) Some people, they pride themselves in telling it like it is. Did you ever notice that? And I have noticed about those folks, they could take it the least. They love. I had to just tell them how it was. And then you tell them how it was, (laughs) all you know what breaks loose. But I think they need to be reminded that, God didn't talk to them like that. God didn't come to them like that. He came as a good shepherd. He came with mercy. He came with grace. He came with winsomeness. He came with hope. And other folks on the other side need to remember that when we're helping folks, we we have to make sure we're not shrinking from the truth. Telling the truth in love. In the name of being nice. Did you know the word nice is not in the Bible? And it's not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Just want to let you know that. Gentleness is, but nice isn't. Yeah. So say, oh, that's not nice. Well, I'm glad. God doesn't say I have to be nice. It's all right. All right, and then here's the purpose of the whole thing. Paul says, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Ding, 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 million dollar thing right here. That's the bottom line. And, and I find with lay folks, as well as with ordained people, that's the thing. We want to know how to answer Now, sometimes I think we go too far and we think we have to answer the most deep mystery that even, you know, you get get five guys smoking cigars, drinking scotch, they're going around in circles over it, you know. I'm like, yeah, well, if that's what you want to spend your time on, God bless you. But um, I'm not talking about that. We're talking about being able to give solid, good, truthful, loving answers from the scriptures to people who need it. Peter says a very similar thing in 1 Peter three fifteen 15-16. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Notice what we have to be able to answer. Peter helps us here. The reason for the hope you have. Not all their obscure questions. But the reason for the hope you have. And do this, Paul, Peter says, with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So look, what's the implications of all of this? I want to just say a few things so you don't walk away here misunderstanding the message and saying, oh, a pastor just said that we're all off the hook and if we're not ordained pastors or missionaries or evangelists, we don't have to share the gospel. That's, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. There are places, for instance, real quick, in the book of Acts, where it tells us that all, during the persecution, in connection with Stephen, all but the apostles were scattered. They left Jerusalem. And those who were scattered went and told the gospel wherever they went. So guess who those people were? Unordained lay people. And the point is, you have permission. You never have to ask permission to share the gospel. You have that permission. That's the good news. So nobody's saying that you have to fit a certain thing. But we are saying the freedom here is Paul does not say we all have to be into confrontational evangelism. Now, we should. a lot of us, I know, are doing this thing. But we all must so live our lives that those outside the faith will take notice and start asking about our relationship with Jesus. So you're not off the hook. And then Paul says, we got to be prepared to walk through the open door when God does open that door and make the most of every opportunity. I want to close with this. If you know Jesus as your Savior... Somewhere deep in that new person in Christ. You should have a deep abiding desire to see everybody come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. That should be your heart's desire. How, how, how many people you led to Jesus is a really bad question. Because some of us are more of a sowers than we are Reapers. And we need to be careful of putting things on people that aren't biblical. However, this is what Spurgeon says, and I like this a lot. Though I can understand the possibility of an earnest sower never reaping, I love this, I cannot understand the possibility of an earnest sower being content not to reap. You see the difference? And I I mean, that, that really sums up.